open your, your Bibles. We're in James chapter 5, verse 7. And this will be the last Sunday in the book of James. Uh, and it will end just as it began by encouraging believers who are suffering for their faith uh, to be patient. In fact, in verse 7, it says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. You know, since he was talking to Jewish believers, they had studied about Christ and how he was going to return and and establish his kingdom. So I believe that James was talking about the second coming of Christ here. There's some other scholars that believe a little different, but this is what I think. Uh, Not that I'm putting myself in the scholar, uh, uh, you know, uh, category there, but that when Christ returned, it would end the persecution of God's people. Uh, a new beginning for the redeemed. And and until that time, we must be patient, James is saying. Uh, In fact, the the word he uses here is uh, macrosthumus. It means long anger. Macros is where we get the word macro, uh, is in large or something, so it means long. And thumus, which means anger. Uh, Long-tempered, long-suffering is another way of saying it. Now, in chapter 1, James begins his letter with the word patient. But in the Greek, it was a different word. It was hupemone. And, and I don't know if you remember studying that way back when, you know, like 13 weeks ago or something. But it means to, to remain under pressure, to not run, to hang in there. And, and the Greek word deals with situations or conditions. So in chapter 5, the word is a little different. It deals with the, the person. It's telling the person to bear through it. So the first one is don't run away. And the second one is to deal with it in a Christ-like manner. And this has been James's whole theme throughout the whole book is, is maturity, is in growing up. And this is where James wants to see us. This patience that James wants from us is still difficult, though. I've found that over the years, and I'm sure you have too, to not retaliate against somebody who's causing you problems, to not be irritated about it to, to, to the point where you actually act upon it by saying something. We have to draw on God's divine love, even when it's difficult to deal with. James actually goes on and gives us three different examples of dealing with these things. The first one, he uses the farmer as an illustration. He says here, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. We live in a society out here where we pump water uh, when we have it uh, to where we want it, to the farmers, to to the farms and the trees and, and the different crops. In good years, that's easy. In not so good years, it's a little harder. But back then, they had to wait on the rain. They, they would just be standing around looking up at the sky, you know, praying, Lord, bring some rain. We need some rain for, this, for the seeds that are in the ground. So the farmer works very hard at the beginning. They got to prep the soil. They got to work that soil. Then they got to plant the seed. And then they wait. And wait. And wait and wait some more. During these times, I would visit my grandfather on vacation, and he was a farmer in Oklahoma, a cotton farmer and wheat farmer, and Milo and some other stuff. He had some cattle and stuff. But during these times when I visited, sometimes we'd go down to the cafe and sit around and talk. I got to hang out with a whole bunch of old men, you know? Well, well, okay, 
when you're, when you're six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, you think they're all old men. Anybody, you know, that's older than you, you know, but you, you know, sit around and, and talk and visit. He was waiting. Other times I would ride the tractor with him literally for all day long. We'd be driving along and he'd pretend like he's falling asleep right as we came to a, a turn and I'd have to, you know, jab my elbow in him and grandpa, grandpa, you got to turn the tractor, turn the tractor, you know, so we wouldn't go off the, uh, the field and stuff. It was a lot of fun. And then as I got older, I found myself out there all day long by myself in the tractor, uh, plowing and planting and, and harvesting and these things. Well, in Israel, there was a lot of rocks, a lot of volcanic rock uh, everywhere. In fact, if you go visit Israel, they'll say, take all the rocks that you want. Uh, we have so many of them. But uh, so they would use these rocks as they cleaned up the field. They would use these rocks to to build their boundaries of of their different fields. And you'll see the rock walls all over the place. When you go to Hawaii, you'll see a lot of the same thing. The farmers dug out the field as he was working, as he was prepping the ground so he could plant the seed. And then he would wait on the rain to fall and wait and wait Eventually, the spring rain would come, and, and, and the, or the fall rain would come, and, and then he would wait more, and then the spring rain would come, and then the harvest time would be upon him. And this is what we do with the kingdom of God. We prep people by building relationships. We're prepping the ground. We're building those relationships. Some of us actually go out and plant the seed by our actions, our attitudes, how we handle different situations, uh, how we talk about the Lord. We go out and we evangelize not only with our life, but sometimes with our words as we talk with different people about what the Lord is doing in our own lives. And then we wait for the Lord to harvest. Some of us are here for the harvest. Oftentimes they go away and they're harvested by someone else. So when we're walking around thinking, man, this is a kind of a, a waste of my time sometimes. But I'm supposed to keep doing my job. And when I get people right on the cusp Sometimes they leave and they go somewhere else. And I'm like, wait, Lord, I wanted to do the harvesting of that. I prepped the ground. I talked, I planted that seed in that person. Why did that church or why, why did they move somewhere else? Why did they get the privilege of the harvest? I want that privilege. And the Lord says, no, that's not your job right now. I have you doing something else. But we continue to pray for that harvest. We continue to pray for patience during this time. We do our part and God is faithful. We need to do the things that God calls us to do. And that's the question for you. Are you doing those things or not? Because then the Holy Spirit, if we do our part, the Holy Spirit draws people to the Lord. And it's a supernatural thing that we don't quite understand. In fact, in Mark 4, Jesus talks about how a man spreads the seeds. He, he goes out and he spreads the seeds and he goes to sleep. And he doesn't mean immediately overnight it sprouts, but he goes to sleep. So time goes by and the man doesn't know the details of how the seed is going to sprout. He doesn't know the germination process. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have all this stuff back then to completely understand it. We understand a lot more today than what they did, but it's still an amazing thing of, of what happens here. But one day he gets up. He looks out, and what's sprouting out of the ground? 
We start to see the, the growth of the plant. We don't know how. We don't know when it started. Just like we don't know what happens in someone's heart. When the Holy Spirit brings forth life, it is a supernatural thing. We do our part. The land gets watered, and then the seed sprouts in their life. The ultimate harvest in the Bible is when the angels come and take the harvest to go back with them to heaven. But the main point that James is driving home here is patience. The farmer knows that it takes time. We need to understand that. It takes time. Unfortunately, we live in a society that's instant, right? Fast food, cell phones, Amazon, we order it and it'll show up at our door in two days, sometimes even less. We have to learn the patience of God. Verse eight, he goes on and says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Another version says, establish your heart instead of stand firm. Establish your heart. In 1 Corinthians 15 uh, 58. It says, therefore, my brothers and my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor, uh, or that, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are to remain. We are to decide. We are to to establish our hearts. We are to stand firm. You do your part. And then God brings forth life into people. Our labor is not in vain. Sometimes we see the result. Sometimes they go off and it's years later and you hear back that God has done something amazing. So we need to do our part. Galatians 6, 9 is another great example of the world telling us to stand firm. I'm not going to go into it today, but, but please take your time and, and read that in Galatians 6. You know, it's been a little, little more than 30 years since Pentecost when James writes this book, since the time that Christ died on the cross. They were starting to wonder if Christ was returning. They believed it was going to happen very quickly. So, so now some were, were doubting. And James is saying, no, 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 no. You need to stand firm. You need to, you need to decide where your, your beliefs are. Don't lose hope. You need to be sure and just do your job because you don't understand the workings of God. You know, the other day I was talking with my mom and uh, apparently all of us or boys were born about a month late, uh, which did not make my mom happy. All four of us. It was kind of interesting. You know, it was back in the, that time when they didn't induce and they just let nature take its place and, and so forth. But all of us are about a month late. But, but one thing that did not happen was this. My dad never looked at my mom and said, you lied, you really aren't pregnant because the baby is not here when they said it was going to be here. It was obvious that she was pregnant, right? I mean, how obvious could it be? Well, if you look around, we will see the Lord's presence is obvious when we look around, when we start to, to look at the things of God and not at ourselves. 
We obviously see the, the signs of the end times that are, that are upon us. We don't know when exactly that'll happen, but it doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to return. We don't look at the pregnant woman and say, you lied, the baby's not here on time. We don't look at God and say, you lied because Christ hasn't returned yet. We don't know the timing of God. So we keep our eyes on heaven and we're faithful to those that we're serving. When the master comes, the Bible says the master will see that you're faithful. You don't want to be caught not being faithful. You want your master to see that you're faithful. It goes on and says in verse 9, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of long-suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So if we're looking upward, we're not looking outward. Our focus stays on God instead of each other. Our problem is that we stay focused on each other. So we start looking at each other's faults. You know, I've learned over the years that there are certain things that irritate me. There's certain things that maybe some of you sitting here do that might irritate me. But guess what? I've also learned that there's certain things that I do as a pastor that irritate you just as much. But when our focus stays on God, that's the key. Because if our focus stays on each other, it produces grumbling toward each other. And it divides us, as we've talked about many times and a bitter spirit will well up within us, and that spirit is a destroying spirit. Romans 14.10 tells us to stop grumbling about each other as Christians. All throughout the scriptures, it tells us to stop grumbling. One, about this life and our difficulties, and, others, and other times about each other. And we need to be careful of that. In Romans 14, it says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother and sister. And we've talked about that before. I'm not going to go into the nuances of that, but, you know, a series of Romans online. So go check that out, Romans 14. But uh, also, in 1 Corinthians 3.10, it goes and it says, By the grace of God, or by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. But the day will, be, uh, will bring it to light because of the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though the only one escaping, uh, even though only as one escaping through the flames. This is saying, if you are a Christian, you're going to heaven. You are going to heaven. You do not need to doubt that. But this is also saying, if you build on anything else 
other than the foundation of Jesus Christ, it will be brought to bear. It will be, you know, out there for all to see. And you will not, it'll be burned up if it's not built on Jesus Christ. In other words, your reward goes up in flame. But if everything you do is about Christ, then your reward shows itself. And, you know, the, the building shows itself. It has survived and God is going to reward you about that or with that. Our actions need to be of God. We need the right motiva- motivation because it's not about recognition. It's not about personal gain. It is about Jesus. In 2 John, starting in verse 8, it says, Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You know what this is saying? It's not how well you start. It is how well you finish. This goes back to one of my favorite words that I've talked about, uh, you know, time and time again the, uh, in Philippians, apocaridokia, sticking out your neck at the finish line. We just had the Olympics, and if you watched any of the sprinters at the end of the finish line, they stick out their neck and they stick out their body as they're going across to, to in other words, they're doing everything they can to finish strong. So if we, you know, if we uh, grumble, if we have bitterness, our focus changes and we don't finish strong. And, and this clearly says that we can actually lose some of our reward because of it. Well, back to James in verse 10, he mentions the prophets. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, many of these prophets in the Old Testament went through thick and thin. Israel often found itself living in idolatry, and the prophets would have to preach against that. And people do not like it when a prophet stands up and says, what you're doing is wrong. People automatically get defensive, and they were preaching about it. And then you had all these false prophets that were out there saying, oh, Israel, don't worry about your sin. You're God's people. God loves you, so don't worry about your sin. It's not what it's about. The prophets were correct, and they were persecuted behind, you know, because of it. In fact, read Hebrews 11 about some of the things that prophets lived through. They were tortured. Some of them literally had their lips sewn up so they couldn't speak anymore. Some of them literally were sawed in half. They would stuff them in hollow logs and literally saw them in half. You know, some of them were slain with the swords, all sorts of things. And if the prophets went through it, then certainly, certainly, we can handle patience in the things that we go through which for the most part aren't going to be as bad as what the prophets went through. Now, the third example is Job. Verse 11, it says, As you know, we count as blessed those who have have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. 
Now, Job is a very long book. The first three chapters are about kind of getting into the story of what initially happens. He loses the wealth. He loses his health. He loses his family, except for his lovely wife who tells him, you might as well go and die. Uh, Tells him basically to commit suicide. That is not a great wife. You know, great marriage, right? Now, chapters 4 through 31, is, it's Job giving his defense. He debates with his friends because they basically keep telling him, you have sinned against God, and that is why all this is happening. Confess your sin. And Job's going, wait, 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 wait a second. I have not done this. And then chapters 38 through 42 is Job's deliverance. God humbles Job by telling him, what kind of man are you to talk to me in this way? I've done all this stuff. I created the heavens. I created the earth. I've created all of this. And he humbles Job to give Job a little bit of perspective. And then once Job realizes that, he worships the Lord. And then God honors him with twice as much as what Job had before. We know what happens. We've read, you know, we've heard the story. We may not have read the whole book. It's an interesting book to go through. But put yourself in Job's shoes. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. He didn't know that God and Satan, Satan approached God and said, said, well, you know, I can turn anybody. And Job says, well, take my guy Job down there. He's a wonderful man. And and Satan basically says, let me at him. Let me try it. And God says, okay, go ahead. But Job doesn't know what went on between Satan and God. You know, oftentimes we forget that we don't understand what's going on behind the scenes of our lives. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know why God is choosing certain things to to allow those things to, to happen in our life. But I do know one thing. We are called to be patient and to persevere through it. Now, when we hit verse 12, it kind of seems out of place at the very beginning. It says... Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. You know, I think this is, I think what he's trying to say here is, this is about other people. This is about others. Sometimes we make other people suffer when we give our word and we don't keep it. And and we're going to talk a little bit about that a little later in this sermon. But when we give our word, we need to keep our word. James is kind of in a a review mode of his letter. You know, he's talking to those who, who hired people and didn't pay them on time. In other words, you were breaking your word. You were saying, you know, uh, you know, in the name of God, don't worry, I'm going to pay you, and I'll pay you tomorrow morning for the day's wages. The problem was they had to feed themselves that night. They had to feed their family that night. They worked on a daily basis and got wages each day. So he was saying, don't hold back. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't swear on something. In fact, Matthew 5 Uh, 34 through 37 says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for is God's throne. This is Jesus talking or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is a city of the great king and do not swear by your, by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. 
All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This goes toward our maturity as James has been talking about. And Jesus was saying the same thing. When we give our word, we keep it. We don't bring oaths into it because oaths are binding. And then, then once we're bound to something, then, then we have to start looking for loopholes where there's none. An oath is taken in the name's Lord. You know, anytime it's taken in the name's Lord, it's binding. An oath in the Lord's name is not a wishy-washy type of thing. Just do what you, you say you're going to do and forget the oath taking. Just yes or no. Godliness doesn't take an oath. So you need to forget about that. Don't swear by God. Don't swear on your mother's grave or anybody else's grave. If a person has to say something like that, it makes you wonder, why are they saying that? And what do they have to, you know, to hide? Are they being truthful? He goes on in verse 13 and says, If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If anyone's happy, let them sing uh, songs of praise. The, the word trouble here means... Difficult circumstances. Paul used a word uh, describing his troubles, preaching the gospel, when he talked to Timothy in the book of Timothy. And James is saying the same thing here. A mature, <clears throat> excuse me, a mature Christian doesn't lash out at others. And sometimes that's hard. When we're going through difficulties, we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to ask for God's strength to deal with it. Then ask for his wisdom to, to figure out how to use the situation for the glory of God. Because that is what our lives are about. God's glory. This is the maturity that James has been teaching us. In verse 14 it goes, If anyone is si among you is sick, let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now I want to point something out here. I've been in full-time ministry since 1994, and I've heard many times over the year through different church people, I grew up in the church, and I used to hear this all the time, I was sick, and they never even came over, they never even called. Well, first off, sometimes we don't even know a person is sick. Why? They never tell us. We didn't know a person was in the hospital because we don't find out until they're out of the hospital. You need to tell us. You need to call the elders. You need to call the pastors. You cannot assume that they know everything. And right here in Scripture says, you have the responsibility to contact us. Now, James, notice one thing he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you will be healed. See, in our maturity, we understand it's up to God about what happens. Again, there may be a reason for what's happening that we do not understand at all, uh, you know, in the middle of all this. So we trust that if we're not healed here on earth with whatever ailments we're going through, that we will be healed when we go to heaven. We're going to be healed one way or the other. But it's all about God's will being done. In 1 John 5, 14, it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, our confidence is God hears us. Not, well, God's going to do what I say. God is listening to us. What he chooses to do is up to him. I can pray for a church on the beach of Hawaii. 
which I have over the years. Lord, just give me that church. For some reason, God has decided that's not the will that he has for my life. So I just have to visit as often as I can, right? It's the same for our health. We tell God what we want, and then we put it in his hands. We let him make the decisions. Now, this last part is very interesting. We don't completely understand it all. Uh, There's many debates about what he's trying to say amongst the scholars, but it starts out in verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Now, James could have in mind here the idea that sickness is due to sin. And I think this is correct in in some ways. Not all sickness is due to sin. But the Greek is talking about a continuous sin. Like, um, you know, I I tell you, if you drink a lot, you're going to have, you know, you have that continuous, where you're getting drunk all the time. You have that continuous sin going on and you will get sick. Your body will break down. Um, There's other sins that will lead to certain things, this constant sin, and then God disciplining a person. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this, and you can read about that later if you want. But discipline doesn't mean you're no longer a Christian. When I discipline my child, is he no longer my child? Of course not. I love them. I'm just trying to teach them along the way. Verse 16, it goes on and says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each, uh, for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Wow. Think about this. When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? Yeah. We like to hide our sin, don't we? We don't want anybody finding out about our sin. We don't talk about our sins. We don't talk about our struggles. uh, struggles. Therefore, we do not ask for prayer, and then we won't be healed. James says a righteous person's prayer is powerful and effective. We need to tap into that. We need to ask for prayer and tell each other what we're struggling with. We need to send out a prayer request. And when that is sent out, we need to take a moment and pray. Right when you get the request, start praying. This could also mean, uh, you know, another idea is this could also mean that somebody is weary who needs prayer for strength in their life or whatever they're going through. So the point is that we need more prayer. This is how powerful your prayer is. It can be used in God's name to heal someone. He also compares us to Elijah, a giant in the Old Testament. In verse 17, it says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are now, or even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Now, when's the last time you've been compared to a person in the Bible? Most of the time we get compared to Peter, right? The goofy guy who keeps messing up and we all get the laugh. Ha, 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 ha. But he compared you to Elijah. Man, James is saying aim a little higher. Elijah prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain for a long time. 
And then, then he prayed for it to rain and the, the heavens opened up and the rain came. And that is the power of prayer. Verse 19, it says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error, there we go. Got the slide over. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know, many people think that this is about evangelism to the lost, which that is good to do, you know, to evangelize. But I don't think this is what James is saying here because James is writing to Jewish Christians. I think this is about restoration of the backslidden Christian. There are times when when a Christian person just doesn't want to repent. And it's our responsibility to go to them and say, it's time for you to come back. It's time for you to come back into relationship with God. It's time for you to come back in relationship with us as the body of Christ so we can support you. And if they come back, their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Now that's a great way to end a book. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We are in the turning business, turning people to Jesus so the blood can cover their sins. The only way to do this is a life full of uh, of maturity and one that's headed toward that maturity, a maturity that leads credence to what you say is what you believe. Because the worst thing for a Christian is to say they're a Christian and walk out of these doors and not act like it. How you act leads credence to what you believe. Hmm. That is a great book from James, calling us to have a commitment to maturity. And I pray that that is what you're about. Why don't you stand up as the worship team comes? Um, up in front of me today uh, and uh, leads us in a last song. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for James. I thank you for a man of God writing down the things that he's learned by the help of the Holy Spirit. One that kind of knocks us around. We love the the love books. We love the uh, Philippians encouraging books. But this book is so pointed to saying, grow up, Alan, Grow up, Christian. Mature. Keep your eye on God. Do the things that are of God and avoid the sin that is out there in this world. I pray, Lord, that you give us the strength, the patience, the perseverance to go through the things that are happening in this life with the focus of knowing that you should get the glory. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he give you patience to live this life until you see him. May his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You guys have a great day.